I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hello, Keegan. Hello, Madigan. How are you doing? I mean, I know we just had this conversation literally like an hour ago, but how are you? (laughs) I mean, better than I was. I'm always like feeling a little bit more awake by the time we start the second one. The first one, I'm like, oh, I'm not here yet. And then after like a good half an hour of like passionate conversation about things we care about you know you wake up a little bit so I'm true feeling good. yeah you know also really does take your mind off that depression doesn't it like For having real. a task having a task is good you know I, made I a love post. having me a task <laughs> I made a post and this is something that you know maybe we can talk more in depth about another time but I, I made a post recently about high functioning depression because I feel like people don't talk about high functioning depression as much because they see someone being very productive or getting a lot of things done and they think like that person's got their shit together they have everything together they don't have depression and it's like no no maybe maybe they're being productive to run from their depression as much as possible. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, they're just like literally avoiding everything by doing a million other things. They don't have to think about anything sad, you know? Yeah, I mean, if you can get mentally exhausted enough, it really can go a long way in 
in hiding from your depression. Yeah, it's still there, definitely. though, and you should still seek treatment. Okay? Yes, you uh, should. Okay, and with that, <laughs> totally not on topic today. This is our take two of this episode. My computer completely froze the first time we recorded this. It was supposed to be out last week. Uh, we were, like, almost done. Like, we were about to wrap up, it was, finish it was the episode. <laughs> truly, you know, we've had issues in the past, right? Like, technical issues happen, especially especially when you are not recording in person. I have had, between, you know, my two podcasts, I have definitely had to re-record episodes many times. Yeah. Um, th- that stuff happens, but I can tell you, when you are, like, 10 minutes away from ending yeah. an episode and it happens. It hits different. Oh, it hits different. Oh, it hits, it hits different. Yeah, it, it does. But <laughs> it's all good. You know, these things do happen. Technical issues. We couldn't. There's nothing we could do. There's nothing we could do. So we are back at it again for you. Yes, most definitely. <laughs> so we are going to be talking about marijuana and in particular marijuana and the war on drugs and its legalization and imprisonment so on and so forth and criminalization and, and the criminalization history and implications behind uh, how we got to this point because you may be surprised depending on your age uh, to hear that it was not always criminalized in the way that it is today. Um, Maybe that's not surprising to you. If you're a Gen Z, maybe you've lived in a world forever where there has been some sort of decriminalization happening surrounding marijuana. But I know for millennials and previous, so for us, definitely whenever I was in elementary school, especially in the D.A.R.E. program, which I don't think is a thing anymore. uh, I would hope not. Weed was absolutely, marijuana was absolutely, to me, in my child brain, in my fifth grader brain, put in the exact same category as every other drug. Well, right, like I was like, we will explain why that was the case. But yeah, I, I, our first go around of recording, I was talking about how I read the book Go Ask Alice as a kid. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so there's like a whole series of these books and they are, they're kind of sold to you as being nonfiction. They're journals, but they are fiction. Somebody did write them. Um, But because they're kind of sold as being nonfiction, the first time I read this book, I thought it was a real girl's diary. And in the story, she like smokes weed. And then by the end of the book, she's dead. She's homeless. She's got like mm-hmm. needles in her arms, and it's like every yes. she lost everything. The gateway this, narrative, exactly. Yes. And yes. that was like its big calling card, especially in Dare. I mean, do you remember? Just did you like workbook pages and stuff in your Dare class? Probably, but I was a weird kid in that I enjoyed that stuff, so it doesn't oh live God. in it doesn't live in my memory. Um, but yes, I I do think we did. I feel like coloring was involved. Coloring. Um, I remember. I remember. Be- uh, seeing animation like drawings of joints and weed and things like that like that's very clear in my head which of, is like, a the weird drawings. thing like who put the dare program together i mean i really feel like you know what why hasn't there been a documentary made about dare because someone's be got to be working on it very interested in like how that came about who was making these things like because i know that I was well it's a government is it a government program because i, I wonder if it started with like the war on drugs the reagan's yeah i don't know Um, I definitely think it was a byproduct of that. Yeah. But I remembered listening to an episode long, long time ago of My Favorite Murder where Georgia was talking about how uh, she remembered vividly at a Dare-esque program during her middle school years. They brought in like like one of the cops 
who came in to teach the program because that's right. how it goes. Yeah. Um, brought in like a little like little bitty briefcase that had like examples of all the drugs that oh he had like God. confiscated from people. And I'm like, what? that's weird. Who, who said like, yeah, bring cocaine into the school? You know, yeah, like who said that's... these kids need to see what real weed looks like. Um, <laughs> that is like so not thinking because kids are fucking sneaky and they'd be exactly. like, they'd swipe that shit and be like, I got cocaine, motherfuckers. Like, well, now they're like, now I know what to look for. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't think it's going to have the effect that you think it's going to have. But and literally okay. every single one of us has done drugs. The D.A.R.E. program didn't work. <laughs> didn't do shit. Didn't do okay. shit. Yeah. So no. let's talk about the history of marijuana. And that goes all the way back to the usage of hemp, which is what the, isn't that what like the actual plant is? Is hemp? Like the yes. hemp leaf, right? Mm-hmm. I believe so, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the hemp leaf was not always used to just get high. In fact, the THC levels in some of the earlier marijuana plants were so low that you wouldn't really get a psychoactive, like, reaction Effect. to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as much. Uh, hemp likely first came to be in Asia in 500 BC. The plant evolved in Central Asia before people introduced the plant to Africa, Europe, and then eventually the Americas. And the early American colonists grew hemp for textiles and rope. And it was a really easy, fast-growing plant and had many different uses. So it was really popular to farm. In fact, in the early 1600s in Virginia, Massachusetts, and Connecticut, farmers were actually required to grow hemp because it was such a useful product. Right. Yeah. It was actually encouraged by the government to produce hemp. Um, And in the 1800s or up through the 1800s into the 1890s, there were no restrictions on the sale or possession of cannabis in the United States. No, it Um, was everywhere. (laughs) And it flourished. It actually flourished until after the Civil War, because after after the Civil War, there were more imports and other domestic materials that replaced hemp for many purposes. Right. And in the late 19th century, marijuana actually became a popular ingredient in many medicinal products. So prior to this, it wasn't really ingested. It was used more as something that you would weave into fabrics, as you were saying. Um, or use as paper, like, right. a, like yeah. something mm-hmm. similar to paper, things like yes. that. So like in the 19th century, in the 1800s is when they started actually using it for medicinal purposes. Yeah. And it began being sold openly, you know, legally in public pharmacies. Yeah. In... The 1830s, a man named Sir William Brooke O'Shaughnessy, who is an Irish doctor, obviously, he was studying in India and discovered that cannabis extract lessened stomach pain and vomiting in people suffering from cholera. And then, like you said, after that, cannabis extracts were sold in pharmacies and doctor's offices in Europe and the United States to, to treat stomach problems and other maladies. And then shortly after that was when scientists discovered that THC, the element in it that gives you kind of that, like, psychoactive effect Mm -hmm. right uh that that was the reason that marijuana lessened pain as thc interacts with areas of the brain that are able to lessen nausea and promote hunger the fda even approved two drugs with thc in them that were sold in pill form called marinol and syndrose which treated nausea caused by cancer and chemo and loss of appetite in aids patients Mm mm-hmm so it wasn't until, I mean, and you can also find, like, there are New York Times articles from the 1800s that talk about how marijuana at that time was spelled with an H, yeah. um, had successfully 
been used to cure all kinds of things, including like dropsy. Um, so it was it was widely being used. It was just not being used as a recreational drug at the time. Right. It wasn't until the early 1900s when an influx of Mexican immigrants came to the United States after the Mexican Revolution of 1910. Um, that is when we saw this practice of smoking marijuana recreationally start to creep up. Um, right. And this is also when we started to see a lot of the racism around marijuana start oh, to almost crop up. Immediately. Yeah. Yes. And well, like you just said, marijuana used to be spelled with an H instead of with a J. And calling it marijuana in and of itself was a way to kind of make it sound more exotic and foreign and kind of pin it on the Mexican immigrants that were coming into the United States and having it be, you know, it was this like evil weed that was coming in Mm -hmm. along with, you know, there was massive unemployment and social unrest during the Great Depression and there was a lot of anger and hatred toward Mexican immigrants. And so weed was kind of this like easy thing to point to to be like they're coming in and they're destroying our way of lives with this evil weed right right they called it the marijuana menace that was the headline Um, and you can go back and kind of look at a lot of these headlines where they're saying like this Mexican family they all went crazy they all went insane and they did all these insane things these insane acts of violence um, and that this drug was dangerous and it could cause not only insanity but also promiscuity god forbid in uh the people who would ingest it. And so because of this, uh, there was this flurry of quote unquote research that started to link marijuana with violence in the early um, 1900s into the 20s, you know, throughout and, and 30s throughout the Great Depression. Yeah. And it, they also linked it to crime and other socially deviant behaviors that were primarily committed by the quote, racially inferior or underclass communities. Right. And by 1931, 29 states had outlawed marijuana. And they yeah. were basically. That's just, just 100 this- years different difference between mm-hmm. selling it in pharmacies to trying to get rid to of it. outlawing it. And yeah. the difference was who was bringing it in and why they were why they were engaging in the activity. Yeah. And it, it the whole kind of motivation behind it was basically to scare white people away from using this this substance. Yeah, right? and to also grow fear of the Mexican immigrants yes. in the United States as mm-hmm. well. Like they kind of They're went dangerous. hand in hand. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I know something we talked about last time too was uh this idea that marijuana makes you violent and how I was kind of like, man, everybody that I know, like I know when I smoke, all I want to do is just like chill the fuck mm-hmm. out. Like weed is not something that is known to cause violence in someone unless they maybe already were predisposed to that like if they were already a violent person but like you never hear someone being like they're a mean high (laughs) yes exactly exactly like there is it is a psychoactive drug right Um, or a psychoactive substance so if you already have maybe like an underlying mental disorder that you're unaware of um or something that it could exacerbate then sure, it's possible. Like it is possible that smoking weed could instigate something that was already underlying. But in most neurotypical people or um, brains, huh? you know, what we're I'm not doctors. Yeah, <laughs> we are not doctors, right? Um, disclaimer: It is not going to cause you to be violent. Typically, yeah, it's just, and I think that you know, if we look at 
you know, what we learned in D.A.R.E., it's all kind of starting with that, this like idea that when you smoke weed, it changes who you are as a person and it's going to lead you down this, you know, criminal path in your life rather than acknowledging the fact that like, no, it chills you out. It helps with your pain. It helps with your hunger. All of these things. Right. I mean, and again, everybody's brain Everybody's brain is different, right? I mean, for me, and I've said this on the podcast before, uh, smoking weed, I don't do it anymore. I used to smoke quite frequently, um, but I don't do that anymore because at this point in my life, smoking weed gives me anxiety attacks. It gives me panic attacks. Now, there are probably strains, if I were to take the time that I could find, that would not do that to me. Um, I'll hook you up. (laughs) I'm, I'm down to try it again, but... In general, that's how my body reacts to it. Right. There are some people who I know smoke to help their anxiety. And like yeah, it I does do. and it helps their anxiety. Yeah. Um if I, I smoke, smoke sativa and I'm anxious, then I can get more anxious. But if I smoke indica when I'm anxious, that helps me calm down. I get up in the middle of the night every night, I smoke like two bowls out in the living room and then pff, right back to bed. I hear you. I mean, I used to smoke to help me sleep. And I used to smoke to help my period cramps. Yep. Right? So, and and it was effective. And that's that's fine too. You know, what I am saying is that if you are like me and you're hearing us say like, there are no negative side effects to weed and you're like, well, I have panic attacks. So do I. I understand yeah. everyone's brain chemistry is different and you want to figure out what works for you. But to say blanket across the board, this is what's going to happen to you if you smoke weed when it is wildly unproven or to make it sound like it could be physically dangerous to you because yes of course like everybody reacts to different substances differently but in general weed is not an anxiety a dangerous drug yeah it's not dangerous it's not going to make you mean it's not going to make you want to go out and rob a place like that's just not as with anything that you are ingesting yeah right as with anything proceed with caution right it's the same thing uh you know as drinking as anything else um definitely know know thyself right totally this to take it back to kind of like what we were talking about I, i took that sidebar just to give that one little disclaimer that like yeah some people have uh have an adverse reaction like myself right. to smoking certain strains. But it's not the same as saying you are going to lose your mind. You are yeah. going to become dangerous. You are going to kill people, right? For real. And this, this narrative was being really, really pushed uh, in large part in mostly because of racism. And then it kind of took off in the worst way in 1936 when there was a propaganda when there was a propaganda film called Reefer Madness yeah. that was released uh, and in it teenagers smoked weed for the first time and all hell breaks loose they start yeah. having hallucinations there's an attempted rape there's a murder right like it is like and it's if all you from smoke pot. weed once Right, you are going to murder your best friend. It is going to happen. It's right? going like to happen. Yeah, I mean, okay. So about this film, originally it was made under the title "Tell Your Children," and it was made to show parents like here are the warning signs that your kids are like getting high, and probably also to scare kids too. Like, and by the way, this would have totally worked on me. Like, I bought all that shit and dare. Like, I was so scared of drugs. I was so scared of even drinking alcohol. Like, I was such a goody two shoes that this 
totally worked on me. Um, but also this film was funded by a church program. So that kind of also... Shocking. Yeah, tells you a little bit about the... Uh, I guess the intentions or the mindset behind this particular film and how it was made. It wasn't there to be factual. It was there strictly just to scare you. And like I said, it would have worked on me 100%. Right. And I know I talked to you about this the last time we recorded. But for me, when I first saw Reefer Madness, whenever I was a teenager. Oh, you've seen it? Yeah, I I saw Reefer Madness. But I saw Reefer Madness because I had watched the like 1990s musical version. There is a stage musical called Reefer Madness. It's I a stage n- musical? You mentioned yeah, this I mean, last time, but I don't think you said that this was a musical. It was like on Broadway? I, I think it probably was not on Broadway, but the movie I think has Neve Campbell in it from from Scream fame, right? Is and it, it's from the 90s. Is it like a satire musical? Yes, or is it- yes, exactly. Oh, okay. It's a satire. So there is a musical called Reefer Madness, um, I think Neve Campbell is in it, and there's a movie version that you can go watch. So as a musical theater kid, I watched the musical, Reefer mm-hmm. Madness. Hilarious, right? They're poking fun at how ridiculous this yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. It's the same premise. It's the premise of, like, these teenagers get together, and they're she's so perfect, and, like, ugh. And then she loses her mind because she smokes some weed. Yeah. And you see how absolutely wild this premise is. <laughs> But then after I watched that, where it's very clearly meant to be a joke, uh, I watched the Reefer Madness film. And yes, to us now, watching this like 1936 film um, where the makeup is is kind of crazy and like all of the the acting is very over the top. I mean, The Wizard of Oz was 1939. So, I mean, this is an old, old, old film. Reefer Madness is in black and white, and the acting is very, very over the top, right? And so, looking at it from a modern lens, you could say, oh, this is kind of funny. But it's not. But it's not, because you know that they're taking it seriously. Yes, exactly. And everybody at the time took it very seriously as well, because the next year, in 1937, the Marijuana Tax Act came to be, and that was the first federal U.S. law to criminalize marijuana nationwide. All but industrial uses for the plant were criminalized. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about the man behind the Tax Act. Mm -hmm. Um, This was a man named Harry Anslinger, and he was named the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics during the Prohibition. Mm -hmm. And then after the Prohibition ended in 1933, he kind of needed to find a new avenue, you know, a new outlet, a new thing to kind of make him relevant uh, in this job because the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was created yeah essentially he's um, like i gotta keep my job yeah for the enforcement of prohibition so when prohibition was over he had to find another outlet so he turned his focus completely on marijuana and began this huge anti-marijuana propaganda campaign and that is where we see a lot of this stuff like right when everything's amping up right before reefer badness it can all kind of come back to harry anslinger and his first focus like you were saying he's kind of the person who decided that instead of using cannabis or something else uh we would start using the word marijuana yeah because it had a stronger connection between mexican immigrants and the substance right yeah and this guy was like a 
raging racist. He claimed that the majority of pot smokers were minorities, including African Americans, and that marijuana had a negative effect on those, quote, degenerate races, such as, like we said, inducing violence or causing insanity. But he was really, like, to me, it seems like he was very motivated by all of this, too, based on not just prohibition, but his unbelievable racism. And he also had this belief that, uh, that smoking reefer would make people of color think that they were like on the same level as the white man, which is right. just so he, disturbing. He pushed this narrative that marijuana made African-Americans, quote, forget their place in society. Yeah, yeah. Right. And he started to associate marijuana and the violence that it supposedly caused with black Americans. He made that connection. Yeah. Um, that this is the reason why this community is so violent. And he also said that that jazz music, which was very popular at the time, it had kind of seeped into the mainstream, it kind of seeped into... Um, white culture. White, white people culture. liked it, so... Right, young <laughs> white people were like sneaking off to go to all the Negro clubs and listen to jazz music. Right. Uh, and, you know, Anslinger, being a raging racist, did not like that and noticed that there was a connection between black Americans um, who smoked weed and the jazz community. And yeah. so he deemed jazz to be evil music um, and said that it was a direct result of the prevalence of marijuana smoking within African-American communities. And, um, of course, the idea that could make... The idea that weed could make black people, like, uppity. Yeah. Right? And maybe... Maybe I mean, want to actually go out and fight for their rights. It terrified the middle white class, white class Americans. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Terrified middle class white Americans. Yes. That's the right way to say that. Exactly. <laughs> well, within the first year of the Marijuana Tax Act taking effect, black people were three times more likely to be arrested for violating the narcotic drug laws. And Mexican people were nearly nine times more likely than white people to be arrested for the same charge. So even within the first year, we have an astronomical difference between how white offenders were treated and how people of color that were using drugs were treated. Uh, they were more likely to be imprisoned than white people. Right. And I believe that that was probably a big part of why it was criminalized so heavily in the first place or demonized, right? Yeah. Because up until this point, it hasn't really been criminalized. It's been taxed. Um, but it has been highly discouraged and it has been demonized as something that is being used by lower class or inferior um, races yeah. in the United States. And I think that that was done very deliberately so that they could arrest as many not white people as possible i i don't think that that was um it wasn't the plan to go after the white people with this you know right um, it was an easy way to be able to get a certain um section of people and i don't have a lot of notes about this uh but i do want to include because very often in the literature if you're reading kind of like the news articles and stuff like that and I don't want to forget about them especially because my fiance is half Filipino yeah Filipinos got looped in um very often with Latinx people and with uh, African-American people in this narrative talking yeah. about talking about marijuana use specifically they would call out um Filipino Americans so, so so bizarre so fucked up uh, yes. Well, this was getting worse and worse because obviously they wanted to 
have more and more reason to imprison more and more people of color. So in 1952, the Boggs Act was passed, which made sentencing for drug convictions mandatory. The first offense for possession could land you two to five years in prison and a fine up to $2,000. Right. I mean, it also... It's not as though there hadn't been research being done on this substance, right? Right. In 1944, the New York Academy of Medicine had actually issued an extensively researched report declaring that contrary to earlier research and popular belief, use of marijuana did not induce violence, insanity, or sex crimes or lead to addiction or other drug use, right? Like they were basically like, look, man, there's no real evidence that this is going to in any kind of like wide scale way yeah cause any of this stuff that you're saying it will all well, of this that's, propaganda that's 1944 well, experts and, yeah and i mean i think even before that like when anslinger was doing his thing i think that a lot of the scientists if i remember correctly that he worked with were even saying like look no like these effects that you're saying this substance has like that's just not true and they just didn't disclose that to the rest of us right right because we also didn't mention that after reefer madness that is when the gateway drug narrative began yeah like it wasn't just that okay marijuana is bad in itself uh, and it's, it can cause all of these things if you use it one time. Right. It was also that narrative that we see being pushed throughout our entire childhoods began right then when they said, hey, not only is it bad, but it will also lead you to addiction and other drug use. Yeah. And that is very disproven at yeah. this point that smoking weed is there. there is no direct line or correlation uh between smoking weed and moving on to quote-unquote harder drugs yeah that's an, so. that's a that's one person's idea what am i trying to say that's like a person's own prerogative to go from weed to harder drugs the weed isn't gonna make you like go for the harder drugs well you're right and here's the thing if you have an addictive personality then certain things are going to affect you differently than if you don't, right? Yeah. So you could say, with that kind of mentality, you could very easily say, drinking alcohol is a gateway drug to heroin. Totally. If that's the line you want to connect, if you want to find ways to connect lines, if you want to say, you know, well, in high school, he started smoking weed, and then by the time he was in college, he was addicted to cocaine. It's like, Because he was an addict. It's not because of the weed. Yeah. Right, exactly. Those two things don't necessarily have any real thing to do with each other other than... The person. The person and the desire to use substances. Exactly, exactly. So That's it. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. 
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into Nixon a little bit. So in the 1960s, drugs became symbols of youth and rebellion, social upheaval and political dissent. It began to be known as, you know, a hippie drug, a counterculture drug. And because Nixon didn't like hippies and he also really didn't like black people, he had the government halt the scientific research to evaluate their medical safety and efficiency. And he introduced the war on drugs in June of 1971 in which Nixon dramatically increased the size and presence of federal drug control agencies and pushed through measures such as mandatory sentencing and no-knock warrants. Right. So in 1970, President Nixon passed the Controlled Substances Act, which classified marijuana as a class one or schedule one drug, meaning that it was the most dangerous class. Yeah. So schedule one drugs are considered to be the most dangerous because they have the highest probability of addiction and abuse. And also they have no medical use that that's that is what you have to be in order to be classified as a class one or schedule one drug. Freaking um, wild. So which some, we know is not true. It's not. So some other schedule one drugs are like heroin, LSD, ecstasy. Can you give us some examples of what some schedule two drugs are? Because I, I know sure, that you had some I last sure time. Can. Please do. I sure can. So um, for some perspective on that, uh, cocaine, meth, Oxycontin, and fentanyl, all of meth. which are... And if you've seen, if you have seen maybe three random episodes of intervention, um, you might know that also OxyContin and fentanyl, highly dangerous, highly addictive substances, opiates, and they are all considered Schedule Two, meaning less dangerous than marijuana. Honestly, the (laughs) meth one, I just can't get past it because, like, meth legit—you do it once, you're never gonna stop. Like, meth is so addictive. Meth is basically just chemicals. Like, it's so bad for you. It has, I, there are no, there are no pros to doing meth. No, right? like it's it's just bad. It's, it's just bad for you. All right. Bad. I've had a cousin who's been addicted to meth for like my entire life. And it's just it's so heartbreaking. It's Horrible. such a devastating drug. The fact that that Truly. would be a schedule two drug with marijuana being schedule one is my it boggles the mind. It really truly. does. It just it does. doesn't make it any does. sense. No, it doesn't. But I do want to say so throughout the 60s, right? When there was this rise of the counterculture movement. Right. And it had it had two kind of effects. It helped to normalize the use of marijuana, right? Because you're seeing images of Woodstock where there are white middle class kids 
um, who are rebelling, who are smoking weed on camera, right? And you have pop stars talking openly about their marijuana usage, oftentimes white uh, pop stars, rock stars discussing this. And it did work to kind of like normalize the idea of smoking weed. Yeah. Um, but despite but, but despite that, there was this ever-increasing severity of punishment for violating drug laws. Yeah, and, that, and, and it probably is because the social view of them was changing. So if the government wants to maintain its hold on making sure they get the results they want out of what they started, they have to ensure more and more mandatory sentencing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But unfortunately, even though it was kind of like white Americans who made this mainstream, right, because it's always easier to digest in the United States uh, if it's young, good looking white people who are smoking weed or doing whatever. Yeah, it was largely black and Latinx people who were being disproportionately punished and arrested for the crime of smoking weed yeah (laughs) of having weed of possessing weed um and it's just something that is kind of like worth taking a look at yeah the the fact that like the counterculture as beneficial as it was in terms of like having these conversations about how dangerous is this really it was damaging to a certain respect to black and brown communities which i think happens a lot yeah, they're, you know, it's like they're so. blamed for, I mean, kind of the same thing with the Mexican immigrants being blamed for, you know, bringing the recreational use of marijuana into the United States. I think that once you start, it's like, oh, see, it worked. They corrupted them. All these nice white middle class kids have now been corrupted. So maybe that could even be seen as like more proof of the fact that there needs to be tighter and tighter laws about possession and right, dealing. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and the conversation that we kind of had last time was that Nixon did have this vendetta against the counterculture in general. Like, yes, he was super, super racist, but he also was super, super anti-counterculture, anti-hippie, anti-beatnik. Yeah, because that was against everything that he stood for. So I think the fact that what we just said, like it was getting into the white culture, white American culture that probably scared the shit out of him even more. Absolutely. And I think it scared the shit out of a lot of middle class white Americans. Yeah. And unfortunately, as happens oftentimes with situations like this, it was black and brown Americans who paid the price more disproportionately yeah. um, than white Americans in this in this instance. So it's a kind of like a nuanced conversation to have. Very much so. It was the counterculture and and this kind of like free love movement was important in terms of changing the way that the zeitgeist and popular culture looked at marijuana use. Yeah. Um, But it kind of got the snowball rolling on what would ultimately become the war on drugs, which was very, very damaging to black and brown communities. Right. Well, and then also during the 60s, you know, the civil rights movement was still going on, you know, so there, I think, are a lot of different things that are compounding that fear and also that, like, need from Nixon's perspective of 
getting things moving for his own agenda and fast yeah. in order to keep yeah. America the way that he wanted it to be. We almost saw a very drastic change in our country when Jimmy Carter was president. He put solar panels up on the White House that were immediately taken down by Reagan sweet afterwards. Jimmy. Sweet, sweet oh. Jimmy. I've heard, I want to say I heard something about him being problematic in some ways, which I'm sure every president is. So I'm not here to say that Jimmy Carter was like the best thing ever, but... He's the best we got. Look, He's one like, of the best we've had, honestly. I mean, I watched this great that, documentary. That's the thing. He was like a big fan of the Allman Brothers and like rock music. And he was always going to, you know, concerts and music shows. And he would have musicians like come on campaigns with him. Like that was his thing. And I'm pretty sure in the documentary, Willie Nelson talks about Smoky Weed with Jimmy Carter. Uh, it's a great one. I can't remember what it's called. But anyways, when Jimmy Carter was president, he was an advocate for the legalization of marijuana at a national level and argued that less than 28 grams of weed should be decriminalized. He also believed that a treatment approach for addiction would be more sufficient than incarceration. In a speech to Congress in 1977, he stated that, quote, penalties against possession of a drug should not be more damaging to an individual than the use of the drug itself, which I think is incredibly forward thinking. I wish we could have kept him a bit longer because Carter saw the largest scale back of incarceration in U.S. history at that point. But then by the time we get to the end of the first Bush presidency in 1993, so fast forwarding a little bit, he had presided over the greatest hike in imprisonment in the nation's history. So right, in just in like 15 years, we see such a drastic change of incarceration. And I feel like this is a trend that happens a lot, right? Like I think that this happens a lot where we we make advancements. It's like two steps forward, three steps back, yeah, or or whatever. And I think that because pe- people get scared, right? They see Jimmy Carter kind of like doing this thing, and they get nervous about where it's headed. And then they and, bring Reagan in, and they trump it, <laughs> right? And that's exactly what yeah. happened. So when Jimmy Carter was president and making all of these changes. That's the exact same time when we saw the birth of the nationwide movement of conservative parents groups who lobbied for stricter regulation of marijuana and prevention of drug use by teenagers. So they started getting scared, right? Like, you've got these middle-class white people. They're seeing the counterculture go bananas. They're seeing Jimmy Carter step in and say endorse it yeah right and and say like you know what i don't think it's that bad and they're terrified they're yeah. like no 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 we need to stop our teenagers uh from using drugs big yeah. scary drugs and so some of these groups became very powerful they were very good at lobbying for their interests and they ended up garnering the support of the dea and the national institute on drug abuse, yeah. NIDA, and they were instrumental in affecting public attitudes which led directly into the 1980s war on drugs. Yeah. So that was a big part of it. When you get into the 1980s, you get into President Reagan and yeah. Nancy Reagan, whose entire first lady kind of platform was just say no. Just say no. You know, and it was directly coming out of these conservative parents groups and exactly. their fervor for anti-drugs, but specifically because it's a gateway um, and ease, more easily accessible to teenagers anti-marijuana. Yeah, exactly. So in 1986, President Reagan signed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which instituted mandatory sentences for drug-related crimes. 
In conjunction with the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984, the new law raised federal penalties for marijuana possession and dealing, basing the penalties on the amount of the drug involved. So possession of 100 marijuana plants received the same penalty as possession of 100 grams of heroin. Wild. And later, it's it just, it makes no sense. Um <laughs> It, this is I, so stupid. I, it can barely form senses when I think about it. Uh, a later amendment to the Anti-Drug Abuse Act established a, this is very dangerous, three strikes and you're out policy, yeah. which required life sentences for repeat drug offenders yep. and providing for the death penalty for quote unquote drug kingpins. Again, we want to say that a drug kingpin could be somebody who is selling marijuana. It's the yeah. same. They made no difference between somebody who was selling marijuana and somebody who was selling crack cocaine yeah. or heroin or meth. What? Who's there was the, no difference. Who's the Narcos guy? Why am I blanking on his name? Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar. God, these kids selling weed are not Pablo fucking Escobar. Jesus Christ. No, I mean, and look, they're talking about quantity, which is why they say, like, if you're found with a little bit of weed on you, it's typically not that bad. If you're found with a lot, then people will assume that you are selling. And so the penalty will be higher. Yeah. However, to say that the impact on society between somebody who is selling 100 marijuana plants and somebody who is selling 100 grams of heroin would be the same yeah. is so stupid. It's, like, it's incredible. It, it's it's ignoring science, really, is what it is. It's ignoring every single thing that scientists have said and you since the 30s. And you could go to jail for your entire life. I know. You could... There are people... There are people serving drug sentences... For marijuana. That blows. It makes me feel really guilty when I smoke. Like, I think about oh. it a lot. Because well, I'm like, fault, I'm just sitting on but. my couch smoking. And there are people whose lives have been so unbelievably ruined by just enjoying a little pot. It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking just, to me. Just three times. You got caught three times, which, I mean, we can, again, talk about the racist implications of um, what went into the 90s and stop and frisk laws yeah. and things like that, where you were more likely to be caught well, if you were yes. black or brown and because you were being stopped and frisked for no fucking reason. Yeah, and this was the time when people were calling the war on drugs like the 21st century version of Jim Crow. Well, yes, because, okay, so... I don't have a lot of notes on this, but we are going to be moving into the 90s soon. And when you talk about stop and frisk laws, mm -hmm. which were supported by the Clintons. Yes, uh, it was well, part of the you know, 1994 it's... crime bill, which Joe Biden was part of. We talk about mm -hmm. it more on the mm -hmm. episode yes. where we talk about him. <laughs> so it's both sides of the aisle. So I don't want to hear anything. OK, because mm -hmm. it was it was everybody. OK, this is a white supremacy problem. Yep. Not a part. Not a party problem. Yes. So it, when you talk about stop and frisk. And in combination, in in conjunction with three strike laws, yeah, you're saying we are going to stop and frisk you if you just smell suspicious right. to us. You don't have to do anything. Yeah, there doesn't so, need to be a reason for them to stop and frisk you. Right. So the uh, and. The people who were being stopped and frisked, of course, because of racism, were disproportionately black and brown. Yep. So you are being stopped and searched all of the time when you're just minding your own business. Yep. Of course, the likelihood of getting caught if you smoke weed, 
the likelihood of getting caught with weed on you is how many times higher than it would be for a white person? And then how many times higher like that you might get stopped one, two, three times. Yeah. And now you're serving a fucking life sentence. It's it's <laughs> devastating. Honestly, like if I think about Just it too hard, business. I'm going to cry. Yeah. Mind your fucking business. Uh, Jesus okay. Christ. So, yes, like we said, in 1994, Bill Clinton signed the 1994 crime bill. Joe Biden was part of it. Let's not forget that. And to this day, the criminalization of marijuana possessions affects minority groups higher than any other group in the United States. According to the ACLU, in 2001, quote, the number of black men in prison, which was 792,000, had already equaled the number of men enslaved in 1820. If current trends continue, only 15 years remain before the U.S. incarcerates as many African-American men as were forced into chattel bondage of slavery's peak in 1860. And that is so sad. I mean, I'm wondering where the numbers are right now. I should have looked that up. I don't know why I didn't think of this, because it's been 15 years since 2001. I wonder what those numbers are and whether we have reached that unfortunate milestone. The ACLU reported in 2010 that black people were four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana than white people, even though both groups consume marijuana at the same rate. Right, which again is not a surprise that black people and white people consume marijuana at the same rate. In fact, some of the biggest quote-unquote stoners that I know, most of the biggest stoners that I know are white guys (laughs) in general. Um, And we started to see kind of this trend throughout the 90s of this narrative changing about um, what the stoner looked like, right? It wasn't this 1936 reefer madness, scary person who was going to like kill you. Right. It became this kind of like silly, almost lazy, lazy um, kind of person. Yeah. Uh, Dude, where's my car? Whatever that Dave Chappelle movie is, which I totally looked up and now can't remember. (laughs) I Um, always think of Pineapple Express, too. Even though that's like much later, I always think about that, too, because it's such a... Your Highness. There's all of these like the weed-related... Silly um, movies. Silly kind of movies. And so we saw the trend of that start happening kind of like in the 60s and 70s. And then in 1996, California was the first state to break away from federal laws and actually... Um, allowed safe, allowed the sale of medical use for marijuana for patients with AIDS, cancer, and other serious painful diseases. So they said, even though this is still illegal on a federal level, in 1996, which is actually fairly early. That's very early, yeah. They said, you know, we're going to start allowing it for, for these things. However... Many states now, right, have decriminalized or legalized marijuana smoking. And cities like San Francisco and Seattle have gone so far as to re- repeal convictions on marijuana-related offenses and going back as far as 1975. That's the biggest thing, because I don't mean to cut you off, because it's like, yes, it, no, no, totally. it would be wonderful to get people out of prison, but to expunge their records. Like, that doesn't erase yes. their past arrests. It doesn't erase the fact that we've kept these people in prison for so, so long. And these offenders these people need to be exonerated right it gives them the opportunity for a better future and i'll talk more about that in just a moment but i did want to say that 
despite the fact that like we have culturally moved on, right? And now we look at stoners as almost these like lovable archetypes right? Um, in large part. And we have decriminalized and legalized weed throughout the country. Um, and there was a recent poll that revealed that 61% of Americans now support some form of marijuana legalization. Yeah. Politicians, there are still some politicians, largely right wing politicians, who choose to spread dangerous and racist myths about weed. Yeah. Jeff Sessions famously said in 2016 that good people don't smoke marijuana. And in 2018, right? In 2018, uh, there was a Kansas state representative, and you can watch the video of this, and it is gross, who made a public statement that African-Americans responded the worst to marijuana because of their character and genetic makeup, basically saying that they were inferior, and that's why they responded so badly to this substance. So I'm those myths, Right. Those myths that Harry Anslinger um, kind of planted almost a hundred years the American ago. psyche yeah. live on to this day and are causing a lot of harm within communities of color to this day yeah. despite the fact that we as a culture and we as an American public um, have largely gotten on board with the idea of weed being kind of legalized yeah right totally Actually, on December 4th, 2020, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a marijuana reform bill known as the Moore Act, which decriminalized marijuana by removing it from the list of scheduled substances. So like we said earlier, it was Mm -hmm. a Schedule One drug, and we couldn't believe that meth and fentanyl was a Schedule Two. Well, now it is no longer on the list of scheduled substances at all. And additionally, this Moore Act expunges past convictions and arrests and taxes marijuana to reinvest in communities targeted targeted by the war on drugs which is well, there you go a, which is the solution that we needed really i mean i'm sure there are issues to it but that was always my biggest i guess trouble is okay then what are we going to do about the people that are still in jail what are we going to do to be able to protect the uses of marijuana now i mean just like needing a liquor license you need to have a i don't know if it's called a marijuana license or what but at dispensaries there are you know, legal ways to go through everything, much like consuming alcohol. So to me, that seems like the best way to fix this problem. Right. You know, I read an ACLU article where they were talking about that and how important it was that not only do we need to reform specifically marijuana laws, but other drug laws in general, but marijuana specifically, Um, moving forward and that that is vital but we also must remember that we have to right the wrongs of the past in terms of marijuana enforcement right because we have been we have been reinforcing this um punitive (laughs) action against communities of color that have been extremely harmful and we already kind of talked about the marijuana rates um usage rates and arrest rates yeah in addition roughly thirteen thousand people were deported or separated from their communities and families in 2013 alone for drug-related offenses including marijuana so you could be you could be sent back you could be separated from your from your family and everything you know And we need to right those wrongs as well, right? Like, we need to go back. I don't care how long it takes. Somebody needs to be hired to do this job. I was going to say, somebody's got to have that job somewhere. 
Right. They need to go back and they need to start figuring out down the line where we went wrong. And I know that there are going to be people who say, well, it was illegal at the time, but it shouldn't have been. Yeah. But it it shouldn't have been. Yeah. And to have disproportionately been punishing these communities for something that we knew wasn't harmful. Yeah. Is systemic racism. 100%. It absolutely fucking is. Yep. Um, and in addition to that, as we were saying, not only are the incarceration rates really high, but also what happens whenever you have a marijuana conviction on your record. Yeah. It can make it difficult to secure and maintain employment, housing, or secure government assistance for the rest of your life. Yeah. So in addition to letting people out of prison, we also need to clear their records yep. of marijuana convictions. Um as part of any kind of legislation yeah. that we put forth moving forward. I mean, decriminalization is in 13 states and one territory. So hopefully with that, that also means expunging of records and things like that. But that needs to become all 50 states and all of the territories and all of the places. And somebody needs to go back and do their paperwork for all of these many, many drug offenses for the past however many years and make it right for anybody who's still alive or family who's still alive. I think that reparations need to be made. Yeah, I mean, this is what we talk about when we talk about equity, right? It's not just about equality. It's about equity. Mm-hmm. It's about saying we acknowledge that systemic racism existed yeah. um, and continues to exist. But like, let's even put it in the past tense. Right. Existed in these laws um, and that black and brown communities were disproportionately affected despite the fact that all communities were using at essentially the same rate. Yeah. If we want to usher in a more equitable future... We need to go back, roll back the overcriminalization yeah. of of marijuana use in particular, but you know, the war on drugs in general, yeah. uh, and take a closer look at that, and and allow for um, the opportunities to be equitable across the board. If we're really going to sit here and say that we believe that weed is not harmful right and we're gonna say that moving forward yeah you know what i mean yeah. so and also our, our our this is a separate issue but our prisons are overpopulated period yeah <laughs> yeah no kidding so like can we get the people that got caught with weed in their pockets in the 80s fucking out of there <laughs> yeah exactly mm. exactly i mean and we were having this conversation last time whenever uh your computer died but just as one final rant before we end this episode Again, there are people in jail for weed for life, and yet, how much true crime do we consume? Madigan? Oh, I know so much. True Rock crime. Turner how, is out walking amongst us. How many rapists? How many murderers? Yeah. How many child molesters are still out? Who have gotten out? Yeah. Who, who were get, sentenced? Who, who were sentenced to like I don't know a year, two years, and they're back out. Meanwhile, we have people who got high. Three times in a row yep. and are in fucking jail for life. It is. Let's chew on that. Let's let that marinate in our brains for a little bit. That Brock Turner is out in the world. And people I, you know with weed always, offenses are locked in jail. I always think of that story of Mary Vincent, who was the young, she was a young girl whenever, you know, she 
um, something very terrible happened to her. I'm yeah. not going to go into it, but she survived. She went and she testified against this guy. He had done things to other people. He had killed other people and he was let out of prison multiple times uh-huh. and went on to kill more people. Yep. And I'm like, that guy, that, that guy? guy, that guy got parole. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I know. I know. Our justice system is so unbelievably fucked. Yes. The end. <laughs> da, da, da. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. Oh. But, you know, we we can make a difference. We can change it. Yeah. I think that that's the thing to keep your eye on is like push people, challenge people's ideas of of what a quote unquote drug user looks like. Yeah. You know, because I know that there are still people in my family who don't get it. Oh, because totally. Decades of propaganda have made them believe that marijuana use is the exact same thing as any other drug use and challenge those ideas. Yeah, and I think that, you know, just like with everything with time and education and also more and more people uh, smoking weed themselves or knowing people that smoke a lot of weed and, you know, it's changing the general idea of what that entails because it isn't as secretive as it used to be it is slowly becoming more legal so hopefully we're knowing people who are using it for pain management yeah i know that that has changed yes, a lot of people's minds exactly so i'm hoping that you know as time goes on and newer and newer generations are coming into positions of power you know more and more of these things can finally be eradicated i'm sure there will be a million more problems that we're going to have to complain about but hopefully Absolutely. the problems that you know we started in the 1900s can be solved a bit within the next few years that'd be great I'd love right. that. I mean, and I, I do hope that people open their eyes, not just with this, but with other topics we've discussed here as well on the political motivations for people like Harry Anslinger to have um, done what they did in terms of racializing a, a topic, yeah. um, politicizing a topic. I think we'll look back on COVID in the same way oh, in a hundred years, you know. Um, look back on the political motivations of these people and they've had ramifications that have lasted up until this day. Yeah. But it was really nothing more than a political motivation. Yeah. For Harry Anslinger, it was really nothing more than a career move. Yep. And when you look at it from that perspective, it changes everything. It makes it so know. selfish sounding. Like he wanted yeah, this for a career. It com- was selfish. It is. Yeah, I know. But it's just it's when you think about it as like one individual person, it's just like, ugh. And look at the dominoes that fell, you know. I know. Well, I'm going to get done with recording and go smoke a couple bowls because I've had a long fucking day. You have at it, girl. I will. I support it. (laughs) Thank you, Keegan. I appreciate it. Well, if you all have any ideas for topics that you would like us to cover in the future, please go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. And if you haven't done so already, the best way you can support us is by leaving a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I mentioned this in the mini episode. We have like less than 200 reviews and I know there are more than 200 of you listening so please if you are listening and you love us and you haven't left us a review it would be so incredibly helpful for us if you would do so all right that's all we got for you today with all of that being said we encourage you to raise, to raise on. on bye
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.